as his family sat in silence, one of the temple leaders clarified their intent. We will kill you if you don't leave Jesus. See, for 35 years, Ritesh had regularly performed the puja at the temple in southern India. Like millions of other Hindus just like him, he practiced the ritualistic prayer. He would light sticks of incense. He would display the colorful flowers. He listened to meditative music, and he worshipped uh, the various Hindu idols. Uh, he often spent more than an hour in the temple meditating on sacred texts, but as much as he longed for spiritual growth through these rituals. He and his family never really felt a connection with their gods. They never really found a peace for which they were hungry. And one day in 2016, a local shopkeeper named Pascal gave him a Bible after a lengthy discussion about how to know God. Ritesh took the book home and he read it daily. And soon he learned that finding peace with the true God might mean losing peace with his neighborhood. On an invitation from Pascal, Ritesh attended his first ever Christian church service a few months after receiving his Bible. He was deeply moved by the scripture readings. Uh, the sermon moved him, and he was moved by the way that the Christians worshipped with such joy. Uh, he had never seen that, and it says it was like something interesting to me, like this miracle of God. He, that God came to life, he says. He came into the world and gave his life. I heard all those things, and this is something interesting, not like the other things I read. This has made me interested, and, and so I started going to church. Ritesh's wife, Vanya, joined him at church after about four months, and his three children began to attend on alternate Sundays so as to not tip off the neighbors that the family was going to church. Despite his precautions, though, one Sunday morning, Ritesh noticed a, a villager quietly monitoring his family's Sunday morning activities. Another Sunday, several vi villagers seemed to be watching his every move, and finally, the whole village was talking about him and his family. Pascal had started a Bible study with Ritesh around the same time, and one evening they studied Psalm 115, and Ritesh was immediately struck by the contrast between his own lifeless idols, which, quote, have ears but cannot hear, and the living God who hears and answers our prayers. After several months of reading the Bible, Ritesh abandoned the idols and, and their rituals and he took up his cross and committed to following Jesus. He said, I knew there is a real God, and the things we were worshiping were creatures. So I decided to stop worshiping the created thing and to start worshiping the creator God. Pascal, who had given him his first Bible, and who had experienced a lot of persecution from his own relatives and from his own neighbors on account of following Jesus, he warned Ritesh about the cost of following Christ. He said, knowing God is not so easy. You will face a lot of trouble, and you will face problems, and in this village you will have to be very, very careful. But Ritesh courageously accepted the idea that he might one day face persecution Whatever problems will come, he said, let them come soon.
under the watchful and scornful eyes of his neighbors, Ritesh and his family continued to grow in their faith. They enjoyed going to church because for the first time they could feel God's presence and God's joy present as they worshiped with, with their fellow Christians. He says, the first time when I went to church, God spoke to me and I had peace in my heart, Ritesh's daughter had said. I used to get angry so much and I had this short temper and it, and it went away. The family read the Bible together from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. every day. They were so hungry for grace. And as they grew closer to Jesus, they saw him bless their family in so many different ways. And at the same time, though, they also experienced increasing hostility from some of their neighbors. One day, some men came from a local Hindu temple and warned Ritesh that if he and his family did not return to Hinduism, they would be reported to the RSS. That's the Hindu nationalist organization that advocates for a purely Hindu India devoid of either Christians or Muslims. The RSS often deploys mobs to intimidate, to beat newly converted followers of Jesus. A few months or a few days after receiving the warning, a large group of RSS members and Hindu leaders gathered at Ritesh's house at around 7 o'clock in the evening. And when he came to the door, these Hindu leaders reinforced their previous warning. They gave him and his family four days to reject Jesus Christ. On uh, one of the men even entered Ritesh's house, took his Bible, his journal, and his cell phone away. And when the group left, Ritesh noticed that about 60 of his neighbors had also gathered outside his home, and vicious rumors about his family started spreading quickly throughout the entire village. And then six days later, Ritesh arrived home from work to again find a large crowd outside his house. Suddenly, some men grabbed Ritesh, his wife and their children, and dragged them to the local temple. Once inside, they were forced to sit down in a row facing ten Hindu leaders. Who do you worship? they demanded. You're Jesus or the Hindu gods? Are you Hindus or are you Christian? And as the family sat in silence, one of the temple leaders clarified their intention. We will kill you if you do not leave Jesus, he said. This was a context that would not be unfamiliar to the first readers of this letter to the Hebrews. Um, as Jewish followers of Jesus, they were already out of accord with the larger pagan religious structure uh, of Roman civilization, and as uh, followers of Jesus, they had already been alienated from their own fellow Jews. Um, they would have been kicked out of the temple, they would have been kicked out of their synagogues, they would have been renounced in the synagogues. They would have been disowned by their families. They would have lost business. They would have lost trade. They would have lost everything. And the threat would always be that if you will only come back to Judaism and renounce this Jesus of Nazareth, then we will take you back. And you can again have comfort, ease of life, the relationships that you wanted. This kind of thing happens throughout history. And if you think it's just... Hindus and Muslims, I can point to you aspects in Christian history where Christians did the same thing to other minority people groups. There is none righteous, none. 
But here we see these early followers of Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus, and they were being tempted to go back to give up Jesus. And so we read this entire sermon to the Hebrew Christians, uh, written by one of their own. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to look at today, beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what he had promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What do we see here? First, we see the reality of the tears. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ with your life, there will be tears. There will be suffering and hardship and pain. We see the reality of the tears. First, we see the tears of battle. Those are the tears of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped edge of the sword. They had weakness but turned it to strength by God's power. They became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. These are the tears of battle. Uh, we, we look back on these accounts in biblical history and, and we, of course, rejoice that in the end, God was victorious and God's people were delivered, and, and rightly so. But when you look back at actually all of these actual accounts in the Hebrew Scriptures in our Old Testament, um, it was ugly and it was hard and it was bloody and there were tears and it wasn't obvious from day one to everybody that God would triumph in the end. Uh, many times the Israelites in their unbelief were defeated. Um, you know, David faced constant betrayals by his king. He faced betrayal by his own son. He was betrayed by people he considered his friends. These are cause for tears, uh, the tears of battle. Prophets like Daniel faced hungry lions in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had likely been turned into eunuchs to serve the prince of Persia or, 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 or of, uh, um, uh, of Babylon. You know, there's no way you can face that without tears. You know, yeah, they, they were 
thrown into a furnace and they live, but the thought of being thrown into the, the furnace is not an easy one. There's suffering. Yes, God triumphs, but there was suffering. We talk here about their weakness. And yes, God turned their weakness to strength, but just having your weakness exposed can be humiliating. We, we like to think about the past as if the victories were always inevitable, um, you know, but they never feel inevitable when a sword is hanging over your neck. You know, a, a strong faith in God, and all of these men and women dis, d- displayed a very strong and courageous faith in God. That's what they're praised for here. A strong faith in God doesn't mean that there are no tears. It doesn't mean that there's no suffering. Yes, God delivered David, but David also had to go through more tears than perhaps any other king of Judah. So often was he betrayed by those he thought he could trust. These are the tears of battle. We read that the women received back their dead, raised to life, and you think, oh, well, that's good. Yeah, but before... God raised, you know, her son back to death. That mother had still wept over the death of her son. Uh, Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus, even though he was going to raise him from the dead, and did. Uh, You know, the fact that God raises somebody from the dead doesn't mean that there wasn't weeping, that there wasn't suffering and pain and loss. We see here the tears, the tears of battle. Yet we also see the tears of persecution. We read about these others who were tortured, refused to be released. Some faced jeers and flogging. We read about being chained and put in prison and being stoned, about being sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They lived in sheepskins and goatskins and destitute. Destitute. They were persecuted and mistreated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground because that's the only places they could safely show their faith. They were rejected by civilization, rejected by the people, rejected by the cities, rejected by the towns, rejected by the farmers, rejected by the ranchers. All they had were mountains, holes in the ground, deserts and caves. These are the tears of persecution. Scripture tells us that if it's for this life only that we have hope that we are to be pitied among all people um, because it's the resurrection when Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. Jesus promised us, his followers, that this life will be a life of hardship and that if we follow him as he faced persecution, we would also face it. We see here the tears of persecution, the tears of battle. We see the tears of following Jesus. And this is a world in which injustice never really resolves in this life. You know, we read about Jesus' followers experiencing jeers, floggings, prison, being stoned, being sawed in two. You know, those are some of the worst experiences a human life can live. Uh, It's just awful, and you have to wait to the coming age to see resolution because it's not happening in this age. You know, we always like stories that that resolve everything at the end with a nice little bow tied on it that says they all lived happily ever after, and yet those are fairy tales. That's not reality in a fallen world. You know, real life doesn't always have rising action, a climax, a resolution, falling action, then happily ever after. Um, We can kind of look at this through 
through the lens of music. Um, you know, most music resolves at various times throughout a song and then at the end of the song. And to people in the Western kind of tonal musical tradition, music typically contains a series of harmonies that give a sense of tension, and then the tension progresses, and, and it's as if we're somehow moving somewhere, and eventually the song reaches a chord which gives the sense of rest and relaxation and stability. The tension of the preceding chord progression has been therefore resolved. The musical problem has been solved. It feels as if the chords have ended up in the right place where they ought to be. You move from dissonance to consonance. You progressed and then you resolved. And now do understand that I took every single class on musical theory that was offered either at Covenant Seminary or in the theology department at St. Louis University, which is zero. So take this as a half-baked hot take for the sake of illustrating something spiritual. Uh, we like music that resolves. 99% of our modern Western music resolves. We want some kind of chord or tonal harmony that brings all the tensions of the song to a place of musical resolution. We like it to resolve. We expect it to resolve. Even the dreaded 1980s pop music fade-out in which the music just slowly got quieter and quieter until it stopped and then the next song started on, you know, WAVA 105 point whatever. You know, even the dreaded fade-out was a form of resolution, even if it was a bad form of resolution. Um, you know, but it resolved. Audiences expect resolution in their music. But what if this life is less like classical concerto and more like modern free jazz? Or more like some of the atonal work of a Bartok or a Stravinsky? You know, what if the dissonance is spread throughout life and it doesn't ever really come to a stable resolution in this life? You know, modern free jazz music can resolve, but it doesn't always. And when I read here about lives that were lived under jeers, floggings, prison, being stoned, or sawed into, and you tell me, Craig, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and I realize that it ends with me being sawed into, I just don't know how that resolves with a pretty bow on top in this life. If there's going to be resolution, it's going to have to resolve on the other side. You know, beautiful children's story about being sawed into and how nice that ends up for everybody in the end. Yeah, cheer up, Greg. God's gonna work together for the good you're getting sawed into. Yeah, well, not in this life, not for me, um, you know, eventually, but, uh, you know, yeah, the events of this life are never fully meaningless because God is sovereign over every single one of them and every moment of our lives is the call of God saying, trust me, trust me, trust me, do what I say. I am faithful, I will redeem you, but I need you to trust me because God is sovereign over all of it and all of our life is imbued with meaning. None of it is meaningless, but the injustices of life don't always find a fair resolution in this life. This life we live is a world of tears, a world of crying out for a resolution that must come from outside our own world, that must break into this world in order to heal it and bring about resolution. In this, God is telling us, I want you to trust me with your tears. Look at the price our spiritual forebears paid to invest in God's kingdom. 
jeers, flogging, chained, prison, stoned, sawn in two, put to death by the sword, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. There's a reason the author is bringing these things up because these Hebrew Christians are also tempted to walk away. And so he's reminding them, remember what it was, what your forebearers suffered in order to invest in the kingdom of God to bring you to the place where you are now. And if they had to suffer to get you to the relatively good place you are now, then surely you wouldn't want to forsake your own obligation to suffer in order that the next generation might know more of God and might see the kingdom of God come in more fullness. Uh, You know, look at the price our, our forebears paid. They trusted me with their tears. I want you to trust me with mine, with yours. Um, You know, we pay that price by trusting God. Did you read the by faith language? Through faith they conquered kingdoms. Through faith they administered justice. Through faith they gained what was promised. Through faith they shut the mountains of lions. Through faith they quenched the fury of the flames. Through faith they escaped the edge of the sword. Through faith they conquered. Faith means you're trusting God, saying, Lord, whatever you say, I will do it. Whatever you say, I trust your word, I trust your goodness, I know you have my back, I believe you are my Savior, and I will follow you. Trusting him. Results aren't our obligation. Trusting God is our obligation. Salvation and all the results are God's obligation. That's on his job description, not on ours. But the price we pay is faith. All the way through the Old Testament, Dennis McCallum says, the principle of faith alone and grace alone prevails. There are no exceptions. Some of the people mentioned here in Hebrews live morally ambiguous lives. But the author's point is that whenever they were used of God, it was because of their what? Their faith. When you're living by faith, you understand that you may have to give up something very precious to you. You may have to give up the worldly comforts that others cling to in this life. You understand that you may lose respect from certain people if you really follow Jesus. You may lose business opportunities. You may suffer abuse from any angle. Your understanding, uh, uh, then, when you're living by faith, you're understanding that. And, And if you still sign up, that's faith, because by faith you're volunteering come what may. Um, God is telling us to trust him with our tears. Yeah, look at the price our forebearers paid to invest in God's rescue mission. Um, we have to pay that price as well by faith, by trusting God. And, and what that means is that God is saying, I want you to invest your tears. Uh, our tears are precious to God. Don't, don't suppress them. Don't deny them. Don't use them to fuel rage. No, invest them in God. Invest them in Jesus and his kingdom and his saving power because your tears are are an opportunity. You see, these first readers to Hebrews, they were at a crossroads of their life. They could return to Judaism and turn their back on Jesus and live a comfortable life that would be ultimately insignificant, or they could choose to suffer to do it on purpose, to identify with Jesus, to persevere in that and have lives that God would use exponentially to transform the world and invest the gospel to another generation that themselves would then be able to pass it on to others further still. And we are all, in one sense, at that crossroads in our life. 
every choice before us, every opportunity, every block of time is that, is that crossroads. Am I going to take a path of personal comfort and ease of life, or am I going to trust Jesus and do whatever he wants me to do, knowing that he will enable me because he is my Savior God, he is my strong tower, he is my power, he is my deliverer, and he is the one who brings results. You know, we're at that, that fork. Do I avoid suffering and fizzle out, or do I choose to suffer, identify with Jesus, and have them, him use those tears, invest those tears in the coming reality that God is going to save the whole world? Because you see, this is possible, because we see here God's rescue plan for the earth. It was always God's plan. We see tears. God's telling us to invest those tears in his kingdom, and, and that's possible because we see God himself has a rescue plan for the earth, a resolution to our tears coming from outside our cosmos, invading our fallen sinful world, and to imbue in it a new hope of a new salvation, of a renewed redemption, of a true resolution of all the injustice in all of world history coming in the person of Jesus Christ who is God's rescue plan. This had always been God's plan. You know, the Old Testament folks, they were looking to Jesus. You know, we read God had planned here something better for us so that only together with us would they, Old Testament believers, be made perfect. In other words, the salvation God is bringing us is what they were longing for, and only now are they able to begin to enter into it. You know, that something better is Jesus. And the plan from the beginning is that God would rescue the earth by becoming part of the physical creation, united the human nature incarnate in the body in the person of Jesus, and that that Jesus would bring about the rescue that we desperately need and that by faith they were anticipating and that we are also looking for, whereby God himself has reconciled to humanity and humanity therefore reconciled to each other and to the cosmos through the blood of Jesus Christ, and through his incarnation and resurrection. See, God had planned it, we read here. It's not just a New Testament thing. These were all commended for their faith. None of them had received what they would have been promised, but here we see us so much closer to this gift in Jesus. The Old Testament's entire journey had been leading to Jesus, and only in Jesus are we rescued and made complete. Only together with us, we read, would they be made perfect. Don't let that word perfect throw you off. Think the word complete. It's the way James says it. God is at work to make us whole and complete. Jesus is on a mission to save the whole earth. Jesus said the renewal of all things is coming. Jesus spoke about that time when God would, would restore all things. We read in Revelation of that day when our tears will be wiped from our eyes and there will be no more sickness or death and the old order will pass away and the voice from the throne of God will speak and say, Behold, I now make all things new. You know, to be whole and complete, not lacking anything, able to worship and to love with reckless abandon, with no sin within us, with no fleshy limitation, but with the full power of resurrected bodies, able to love and able to rejoice and able to worship and able to thrive as we were intended to thrive in the beginning. They were at a crossroads, 
and we're at a crossroads. What are you doing with Jesus? What are you living for? Are you living for your personal comfort and trying to fit Jesus into that? Or are you living for Jesus, whatever the cost, come what may, trusting him and ready saying, Lord, here I am, signed up for battle. Here I am reporting for duty. Do with me what you want. Only bring glory to your name and life to your people. You know, everything else I build my life on ultimately ends up being taken from me. If we build our life on being youthful and full of energy, then we get old and we lose it. If we build our lives on being healthy and able to run five blocks, then we get sick and we lose that. Our wealth means nothing when you're hooked up to tubes in a windowless nursing home waiting to die, knowing you'll never see out another window again. You know, everything is taken from us, everything we would live for. Even our family members can be taken from us. In Jesus, we have an identity as children of the Father and as siblings of Jesus and as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the temple of God. And that is an identity that cannot be taken away by aging, that cannot be taken away by illness, that cannot be taken away by poverty, and that cannot be taken away even by death itself. I remember one Fulani follower of Jesus in West Africa speaking to his wealthy Muslim father who was trying to convince him to renounce Jesus. And his wealthy Muslim father asked his son, who's incredulous, he asked, what can this Jesus give you that I cannot give you? If you want wives, I can give you wives. If you want cattle, I can give you cattle. If you want wealth, I give you wealth. If you want land, I give you land. If you want name and honor, I give you my name and honor. If you want education and college, I give you education and college. What can this Jesus give to you that I, your Father, cannot give you? And he asked, can you forgive my sins against God? His father thought, and he shook his head. Before his own death, years later, his father, too, would follow Jesus and would die an incredibly happy man. Jesus is going to bring the resolution, the completion, the rescue plan is coming to fulfillment, and it's not limited to this era. Jesus promised that he would return to make everything right. Others, we read, were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Friends, a better resurrection is coming, a cosmic resurrection in which God's shalom will fill the earth in which humanity will be webbed together in, in love and peace and justice and humanity will be webbed together in relationship with God with joy and honor and praise and humanity and God will be webbed together with a creation which will be healed from its bleeding and from its suffering and from its sickness and from its death and all of creation, all the cosmos will flourish because the Lord's promise will have come true. That will be the resolution, the happily ever after moment when every sin has been paid for, if not by Christ, then by those who refuse to follow him, 
when every injustice has been resolved, every follower of Jesus has been resurrected, our bodies will be transformed, and justice is going to roll down like the waters and righteousness like a never-ending stream. God himself has promised it. When God will be woven together with humanity and the cosmos in a tapestry of infinite goodness and justice and life. Friends, for that future, I am willing to die. For that future, I am willing to live. And for that future, I am willing to weep. And I am willing to invest those tears into the saving kingdom of Jesus, which will never end because he has promised. Ritesh arrived at home from work, and he found a large crowd outside his house. Some men grabbed Ritesh. They were dragged with the children to the temple. They were lined up in front of ten Hindu leaders and asked, who do you worship, Jesus or the Hindu gods? And they said, we will kill you if you don't leave Jesus. The men then began beating Ritesh and his wife Vanya, while the terrified children began to cry uncontrollably. One of the leaders threw Ritesh's Bible on the ground. Who is the person who gave you this Bible? But he would not tell. Ritesh remained silent, and finally, after several hours of harassment, these religious leaders let the family go, but their ordeal wasn't over because people outside the temple had told the police that Ritesh was a criminal who had converted his family to Christianity, so the authorities soon arrived and put him under house arrest. And after Ritesh was taken to jail then, the Hindu leaders continued to intimidate Vanya, suggesting that her husband could be killed the next day and that she would have no one to take care of her and her children, but that she could come back to Hinduism. No, she replied. Whatever my husband does, we are going to do together. We will not go back. The police held Ritesh at the police station for a while before walking him outside to a waiting jeep Fearing what might come next, Ritesh began to pray, I am surrendering my life to you, Lord. If I die, I will die for you. If I live, I will live for you. To Ritesh's relief, the police officers drove him to his own home, and then they questioned him and his family for four hours, asking them why they had left Hinduism to become followers of Jesus. The curious villagers again gathered at Ritesh's house, many taking photos and videos as police interrogated them inside. Finally, the officers walked them out of the house and led them back to the temple where they tried to force them to perform a Hindu ritual and return to Hinduism. But when the family refused, the police let them go. While Ritesh and his family may never again be accepted by their neighbors, God has restored some sense of normalcy to their daily lives. They had to move away from their village to another village, and they found a new home where they feel safe. Some fellow followers of Jesus have brought Ritesh a rickshaw so that he can better support his family as a rickshaw driver. Ritesh occasionally sees some of his former persecutors when they use his rickshaw service, but they usually stay quiet when they recognize him. He simply shows them love because he wants them to know the love of Christ 
that has given him and his family peace with God. Let's pray.